Well, this week I have been alarmed at the task I had set my, for myself, preaching one sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. Those who are older, or my age and older will remember Evil Knievel. Remember Evil Knievel? Evil Knievel was this daredevil who would try to jump uh, on a motorcycle over lots of cars or lots of buses, and his, his jumps kept getting longer and longer, and the question was, will he clear that last car? Will he clear that last bus? Evil Knievel had hundreds, I think, of broken bones. Uh, so I don't know if I'm going to clear the whole Sermon on the Mount tonight. Uh, and I promise it won't be an hour long. Um, what I want to do is just try to give us a sense of the whole. When I went to Israel a couple summers ago, one of my favorite exhibits or my favorite experiences was there's a museum in Jerusalem. And it has a giant 3D map of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. It's like 10,000 square feet, so about the size of your average suburban lot. And it is this incredibly detailed 3D map of the whole city. And it was such a great experience because you could walk around it, you could see all the features, and then when we would go and explore the city, we could kind of place ourselves where we were. So my hope is that what I do tonight gives us a sense of the whole so that when we study it, when we meditate on it, we can... Uh, have a greater sense of where we are and how all of it fits together. Just a quick reminder in the gospel where we've been thus far. Remember that after, um, or leading up to this, uh, is the story of Jesus' nativity, the story of Herod trying to, kill, uh, the, t- trying to kill Jesus, Jesus escaping to Egypt and then returning, uh, Jesus' baptism and temptation in the wilderness. And after all that, he goes up on the mountain and gives this teaching. That should remind you of Moses, who followed the exact same pattern, right? He was, uh, Pharaoh tried to kill him. Um, He was rescued. He went into the wilderness. He returned. He led the people of Israel out through water. They were tempted in the wilderness, and then he went up on the mountain to give the law. So Jesus is the one who has come to fulfill the law. He's going to say that. uh, He says that. But Jesus is different than Moses. Moses merely gave the law. He transmitted it to Israel. Jesus does something entirely different. He lives it out fully. He explains its true meaning, and he helps us live it out. This is what John means when he says, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The real meaning of the law and the help to live out the law that God wants us to have. So the beginning is, of course, the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are, among other things, not rules that we're supposed to follow so that God will be favorably disposed to us. Okay, you need to be meek or God won't be, you know, lowly of spirit or God won't be favorably disposed towards you. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus has already said, hey guys, the kingdom is coming. It's here. It's, you can reach out and grab it. What the Beatitudes are is Jesus' invitation into real living. They're his invitation to respond to the fact that the kingdom has come near. And ultimately, I want to suggest that the Beatitudes paint a beautiful picture of repentance. They are a picture of repentance. Somebody who is repentant is lowly of heart. So it's about humility and a desire for good, a desire for the goodness of God. The Beatitudes describe a humble, dependent, vulnerable life. It describes people who don't have what they desire to have. 
And so I think that Jesus is teaching us, number one, that the way into the kingdom is through repentance, which is just what he's preached. But also that that is always our way. A habitual recognition of our need. A habitual recognition of how much we need God's help. We need him to give what only he can give. Because it is precisely a recognition of your lack that opens you up to the abundance of what God has to offer. If you're not aware of your lack, you don't have anything to receive from him. People that know in their bones that the world is not right and they are not right is a description of the Beatitudes. And Jesus is saying, um, among other things, that there is nobody who knows that that can't receive. Nobody is outside of being able to enter in to the life that Jesus is inviting us into. Now, in verse 17, Jesus says, don't think that I came um, to get rid of the law. And it occurred to me to wonder, why would he think that? I mean, why would people think Jesus has come to get rid of the law? I mean, he hasn't said anything to that effect. I sometimes wonder if we think the same thing. Does he want to get rid of the law? Oh, boy, no more law. Yay, it's gone. But Jesus says, no, I came to fulfill it. And I want to explain the three things that I think goes into Jesus fulfilling the law. The first is Jesus himself lived the law out. If you want to know what the law looks like in a human life, Jesus lived it out. He himself did it. He is getting ready to teach us some things, and he did absolutely everything he taught. He did everything that he's encouraging us to do. So the first is that he lived it out. The second is that he gives the true interpretation of the law. Okay, there are all kinds of mistaken understandings of what the law was all about. And Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 guys, let me tell you what the law was always about, what it was always aiming at, what it always intended. And then third, Jesus is inviting us to learn from him how to do it. That's what it means that Jesus fulfilled the law. He lived it himself. He gave its true and correct interpretation, and he invites us to follow him as his students in living it out. And he says this really daunting thing, and he means it to be daunting. You need to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And these were some pretty serious guys. And he says, nope, that's not what the law was aiming at. It's something greater than that. Theirs was not enough. They didn't understand its true meaning. Righteousness is a tough word because we hear it so much. Um, Let me say a few things about it. Jesus does not mean sort of a status, like you've joined a club and now you're in the club. He means being caught up in a way of living. All right, he means being caught up in a way of living. He means attitudes and activities and habits and actions that break the cycle of sin in the world. They don't just avoid sin, but they break the cycle of sin in the world. That is precisely the kind of life that Jesus was living, and he wants to draw us into his wake. All right, so righteousness that he's talking about is a particular kind of life. So one of the things that Jesus does in the sermon, and I think we get caught up here, we think, oh, this is so daunting, nobody could do it, but gee, that's what grace is about. I want to suggest grace is about God helping us to do precisely what Jesus taught us to do. And I want to suggest that Jesus gives us redemptive practices, things to do that will break the cycle of sin. And it's up to us to learn from him, but to put them into practice. 
So here's how I think Jesus elaborates the law. He opens up, and he does this several times. He does it with several different laws. But here's what he does. He's, he first misunderstands or corrects misunderstandings about the law. All right, he corrects misunderstandings about the law. You might say, for example, about the law of murder. He says, guys, the law of murder was never just about not murdering. As if that's a great righteousness, just to not murder somebody. All right, the law was always aiming at something far more than that. That is not fulfilling the law. Jesus cares about our actions, but he also cares more than that about the heart from which actions flow. And he draws us to our hearts, to attend to our hearts and what comes out of our hearts. So he then demonstrates the true meaning of the law. And I would suggest that what Jesus is getting at here is that love of brother was always the heart of do not murder. Loving your brother was always the heart about do not murder. All right, it wasn't just don't murder them. It was you need to walk in a way where you are given in love for your brother. Actually, I think in the deep, deep background of what Jesus is saying here is the story of Cain and Abel. Because in the story of Cain and Abel, you have a brother who's jealous because God accepted his brother's offering and didn't accept his. And Cain stews on it. I mean, he stews on it so much that God actually pulls him aside and says, Hey, Cain, can we have a talk? Because I see anger seething in your heart. And if you don't get on top of that, if you don't do something about that, it's going to result in something really bad. He, he does, or God does with Cain, precisely what Jesus is encouraging us to do here. He says, you need to attend to whether you're cultivating anger and resentment in your heart. Because if you cultivate it and you feed it, it's going to, it's going to turn into something ugly. It's going to turn into something really bad. God appealed to Cain. Jesus says, Attend to whether you nurse anger in your heart, because that is the opposite of walking in a path of love. The law, Jesus would say, I think, is not just don't murder. It's about building up those relationships. Cain should have been his brother's keeper. And the law that says do not murder is calling us to being our brother's keeper. And then finally, Jesus invites us into practices that will break the cycle of wrong and sin in our lives. He says, don't nurture anger. That's a practice. That's attending to something that's inside of you and learning from him to let go anger. He gives actual steps, things to do. Hey, if you're about to worship and you realize your brother has something against you, stop. Leave it there. Go talk to him. Jesus actually gives us something to do that was given in the Old Testament. Repeatedly, God says things like, listen... Do not hate your brother in your heart, but frankly, reason with him. Go and talk with him. If you know that he has something against you, you go and talk with him. You work at reconciliation. So what does Jesus say to do about anger? Go talk to the person you're angry at. Go talk to the person you know is angry with you and work it out. Frankly, reason with your brother. So he gives us something to do. And he does that on every one of these Rules or every one of these laws that he touches on, anger, lust, and others. So again, what he does is he corrects a misunderstanding of what the law was about. He demonstrates its true meaning. And he gives us things to do to fulfill the law by breaking the cycle of sin. If we will give ourselves to the work of reconciliation, it will break the cycle of anger and resentment that can lead to murder. 
Now, at the center of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about, he seems to contradict himself. He says, don't do your righteous deeds to be seen by others. But did anybody catch the seeming contradiction? At the beginning of the sermon, he says, well, you're the light of the world. So do your deeds so that people see them and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, which is it, Jesus? Is it do them so people see them or, or, or do them so people don't see them? Actually, don't think he's contradicting himself. He says at the opening of that section, don't do your virtuous deeds so that people notice you. It's not about you. See, he said, let people see your good deeds. Why? So they glorify your Father in heaven. And don't do your righteous deeds with the motive that people think you're a swell guy. That it gives you status and reputation and maybe influence in the community. That's, that's not why you should do those things. And I tell you what, Jesus says, if you seek your reward in that way, if your heart's desire is aimed at approval with people, at reputation with people, it's all you're going to get. And it's not what your heart desires. It'll break your heart if that's all the rewards you get. So Jesus in this section, and this is something I think is pretty important. I think we think that God wants us to be pretty, you know, have it pretty hard and be really hard on ourselves. But actually what Jesus says in this section is, you know what? You should seek a reward. You should desire treasure. Our, our hearts are desiring organs. They're aimed at longings. Jesus is not saying don't long for things. He's saying long for something that won't break your heart if you set your heart on it. He says, if you give yourself to, to be accepted by people or to impress people, that's all you're going to get. Some worldviews, some religions, some faiths say, oh, you know what? You get disappointed a lot when you want things, so just don't want anything. That's what you should aim at. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Long and desire all you want, but desire things that won't break your heart. And the thing Jesus says that won't break your heart is the reward that the Father gives to those who seek him, to those who desire to do his will, to those who know that life has meaning, it has purpose. There's an aim in life, and the aim in life is to bring glory to our Father and to please him. Jesus really cares about us. He doesn't want our hearts to be broken. He wants us to invest in something that can't be taken from us. And that's why he gives this advice to, to give when we're charitable. Don't do it to impress people. Don't do it to get a plaque. Don't do it to get recognition. Do it to your Father in heaven. When you pray, don't pray and look over your shoulder and think, oh, I, I hope they think I'm a really swell guy. Right? You do these things to your Father who is in secret. We crave, we crave meaning, and we crave meaning that comes from hearing from God, well done, good and faithful servant. And Jesus is helping us aim our desires at the right end so we're not heartbroken by things that can be taken away from us. Jesus will say every other investment can be lost, but investment in seeking your Father's heart can never be lost. Amen? Now, the Sermon on the Mount is structured, here's this word that Kelly and I love, it's a, it's a chiasm. It's a there and back again structure. It's a mountaintop. And the peak of the mountaintop is the Lord's Prayer, the center of the whole thing. And really, if you meditated on that long enough, you could kind of see the connections between everything else in the song, in the sermon. 
It moves from what people see to what people can't see to our Father in heaven. And in fact, Jesus says uh, our Father in heaven 17 times or something like that, 17 times all around this middle section of the sermon. Jesus is ushering us back into Eden. Okay, heaven is, we, we, have, uh, we have deficient views of heaven. Heaven is the home and source of everything that is good. Everything you can think of that is true and good and beautiful, it comes from heaven. And the tragedy of human history is that human life got severed from that. And Jesus comes to usher us back into that life. When we come in prayer, he says, listen, God is my father and you can call him your, your father because you believe in me, because you trust in me. He's inviting us into the Father's house to be frank and open and honest and bring all of ourselves and all of our needs before him. And Jesus is a character witness to the Father all through here. He says, guys, the Father is not somebody who you have to twist his arm to be well disposed towards you. That's not what the Father's like. He knows your needs. He understands your needs. He's generous. He's kind. He wants to lead you into a flourishing life. He wants to lead you into a fulfilling life now and forever. So he's trying to correct that misunderstanding of God as Father. And Jesus says, listen, you you don't need to be eloquent. You don't need to think that you need, if you pray just enough, he'll hear you. He doesn't need to be conjoled. You can be clear. You can be simple. You can be bold. Pray for anything good to your Father. He will hear you. This is the center of of the Sermon on the Mount. And again, I think the Sermon on the Mount is to be prayed. I think it's a a great practice to pray it. But it's also to be chewed on, to be meditated on, to be thought about. And what does that line mean? What does that line mean? And think through each of it. And you should do something like this with the Sermon on the Mount. You should take each line, or with the, the Lord's Prayer, you should take each line and try to put it in your own words. Try to paraphrase it. And this is just an example of what I was trying to do. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Be honored, God. I mean, you deserve, you deserve respect, God. Be honored. Your kingdom come. God, rule here. Rule in my life. Rule in the lives of those around me. Thy will be done. God, I really want to do your will. Help me do your will. Give us this day our daily bread. God, Would you look at our needs? I know there's a difference between our needs and wants, Father, but would you look at our needs? We trust you to meet our needs. Forgive us. Forgive us. As we forgive others. And this is crucial. God, as you forgive us, help us to pass on the way you treat us to other people. Let your goodness flow to us and through us to other people. And this is the turning point of the Sermon on the Mount. And the turning point is right in the middle of the prayer because it starts with the worship of God and it turns towards us, towards other people. It turns as Jesus admonishes us to extend forgiveness to other people. It's as if we've gone up the mountain and we've received his good gifts and we're called to come down the mountain and bring those into our lives. As we forgive, we receive forgiveness from the Father and he has called us to pass it on. And I think this is a major theme of much of the Sermon on the Mount. Receiving how he relates to us 
embracing it and passing that on to others. And Jesus says, if you don't forgive, your Father in heaven won't forgive you. Jesus doesn't hedge on this. He means it. He means that he wants the forgiveness that the Father gives us to change us and transform us and be something that flows out from us to other people. Jesus talks about anxiety. And I think this is one that's super relevant. I mean, anger is relevant, lust is relevant. All these things are relevant, but I think anxiety is particularly relevant for us in the United States of America today. Jesus wants to invite us into a life without anxiety. That's part of what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Now note, not a life without problems, but a life without anxiety that eats us up. And anxiety is not just an individual problem. I mean, I think a lot of people are aware that they struggle with anxiety, but anxiety is a societal problem in our country, and and probably in many countries, but for sure in our country. It is a social trait to be an anxious people. It is the hallmark, or one of the hallmarks, of life outside the garden. It It drives us to slave to keep up. It makes us die young. I mean, we know that stress hormones cut years off of our lives. And I think it's because, I mean, it's the human condition, but I also think it's because as wealthy citizens of the United States of America in a technological age, we are particularly vulnerable to the myth of being able to control all outcomes. We have technology that can do astounding things. Our ancestors would have thought it was magic. We have prosperity beyond their ability to imagine. We have so many things in our favor that I think we're tempted to think if we get the right technique, if we get the right strategy, if we get the right vision, all outcomes will be secure. And the test of that is when outcomes don't go the way you want them to, how do you respond? What happens to your peace? What happens to your state of mind? Now, of course, Jesus points out that all this is silly, right? It's good to meditate on the fact that you cannot control outcomes. There is so much that is not in your hands, and that even if it was, you couldn't change. Notice how Jesus leans in on you can't change your height. You can't change the length of your life. Worrying or or talking it up, nothing will change those things. Our Father, because he cares about us and he cares about our well-being, does not want us to be anxious. But notice, Jesus does not do what Bobby McFerrin says. What does Bobby McFerrin do? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Don't worry, be happy. Remember the song? It's such an irritating song. I mean, it's catchy. But Jesus doesn't give us just the simple advice, don't worry, be happy. What does he tell us to do? Now, hear me out on this. He says, look at the birds. They don't worry. And your father takes care of them. What's Jesus doing? I think he's teaching us to meditate. So if you pay attention to the way Jesus talked, I believe Jesus took time out, not all the time, but I believe Jesus regularly took time out and thought about God's creation. He thought about it. He read Psalms about it. And he thought, you know, those birds, I mean, look at them. And that really got inside of him. It really shaped his view of the world. And he's inviting us to do precisely the same thing. 
Does that make sense? To stop. He doesn't say don't work. But he, he says, listen, you need to stop periodically and think about God's goodness and his care. And see if you can notice it in as many, possible, as many places as possible. Jesus is inviting us into a practice that shaped him so that he didn't walk in anxiety. And it's something we can do as well. His imagination was captured by the goodness and provision of his father. What is your imagination captured with? I read the Drudge Report. Does anybody else here read the Drudge Report? Does anybody, raise your hand if you even know what the Drudge Report is. It's awful. It's a news aggregator. Don't, don't look at it. If you look at it, it will make you anxious. In direct proportion to how much you read it. It's not that we're called to be uninformed, but I think he wants us to have in our roots a meditation on the goodness and character of our Father. And he gives us a practice. Do you use it? Do you use it? I think he guarantees that if you will, anxiety will be reduced in your life. Do not judge, lest you be judged. Again, let me relate it to this. God the Father treats you and I in a particular way. He doesn't want to control us. Um, he wants you and I to thrive. He wants us to be, live flourishing lives. He's not excessively harsh with us. He does not give us arbitrary rules and just wait to catch us. That's not what God the Father is like. He treats us in a particular kind, generous, merciful way. And what Jesus is getting at here is we are all prone to judge others more harshly than we judge ourselves. Think about it. Happens all the time in your marriage. Happens all the time in relationship. It is so much easier to see the thing where somebody else fails, where somebody else fails you or does something wrong. But Jesus says very clearly the way we evaluate others will be the way he evaluates us. And that should give us pause and help us reconsider how we evaluate others. Put it this way. Would you want to be judged the way you judge your children? Or your spouse? Or somebody else whose weakness is so clear to you? Would you want God to treat you and think about you the way you think about them? That's what Jesus is getting at here. And I think there's two dangers that Jesus is trying to address. The first, of course, is that we would be harsh. That we would be harsher on others than we are on ourselves. And, of course, Jesus rejects that. But the other thing I think he rejects that people don't notice in this text is that the other temptation is just to leave people. Just to be like, I'm not judging. And, and maybe close our eyes or ignore or not, when we see something, not say anything or do anything about that. He rejects that as well. What does he tell us to do? And by the way, I'm pretty sure that when Jesus delivered these lines, there was laughter and that he was smiling. Okay? It's not that he didn't mean it, but it's a pretty funny image, isn't it? You're trying to get some, you know, some sawdust out of somebody's eye and you've got a giant stick sticking out of your eye. Jesus is trying to make us laugh to see how preposterous it is to judge somebody else harsher than we judge ourselves. But note his advice. Get the log out of your eye. 
attend to yourself. Attend to what God is trying to teach you and change in you. Why? Then you'll be able to see clearly and help your brother. Then you'll be able to talk to them. He says, prioritize letting him examine you and search you. And when you do that, then you will have grace to help others. He wants a community of clear-eyed, helpful friends who can see clearly because they allow God to get the logs out of their eye so that they can help one another. Amen? Now, Jesus closes the sermon with a number of images and um, pictures of people that aren't, they're the opposite of the Beatitudes. People that uh, take the wide road, right? He says, hey, it's, it's the wide road, the unexamined life, the sort of just going with the status quo, the drifting in life. That's what most people do, Jesus says. Most people don't find that place of repentance and recognizing their lack and recognizing their need. And he gives us the image of the house collapsing. And he gives us the image of people that seem like they're his followers, but they produce bad fruit inside. They're ravening wolves. So he returns to this invitation to the Beatitudes. And again, part of the key to the whole sermon is at the end he says the difference between these two men, the stupid guy and the wise guy, was whether they put my teachings into practice. Whether they learn from me, the masterful, interpreter, the masterful interpreter of the law, and the one who will help them, that's the big difference. Later on in the gospel, he will say, take my yoke. Take the yoke of the Sermon on the Mount. It's mine. I know all about it. You take it. It's light and easy if you take it with me. I will teach you. I'm meek and lowly of heart. I will lead you into this life. I want you to flourish. That's what the Sermon on the Mount says. And this is the way to flourishing, in the yoke with Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew will end with his command to go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Doing what? Teaching them to obey all the things that I have commanded. Why? Because God wants us to flourish. God wants us to be free and to live fulfilling lives now and in eternity. So the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation. It's Jesus' invitation to a real flourishing life. That's what it is. It's not arbitrary rules that he wants to catch us with. It's a life that fleshes out what the law was about all along. It's a life that exceeds conventional religious life. It's a life of embracing and receiving the goodness of the Father, his care, his patience, his attention, his generosity, so that we can increasingly act toward other people as he does towards us. And it's a life with Jesus as our masterful, wise, humble teacher. And Jesus would say it's a life that can start now and go on forever. Amen? Amen. Amen.